whole job is to help people teach with the times. We very purposely, we know that we're trying to reach teachers everywhere. And we, and more to the point, we're trying to reach students everywhere. And we're reaching a real variety of students through their teachers. So for example, compare and contrast. If you're a, a Times print subscriber, right? You're probably, whatever that demographic looks like, you're in a major city in the US maybe, right? Your kids are getting that from you. But to reach kids through teachers is to reach everybody, not just to reach the children of subscribers, if you see what I'm saying. So the learning network's reach is, you know, you therefore get every kind of kid. We definitely uh, have been kind of battling the notion of fake news and the times is this or the times is that since 2015, 2016 in a, in a way that we weren't before. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Today we're talking with Katherine Shelton, who's the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Learning Network, um, which publishes free teaching resources uh, based on uh, Times journalism for middle and high school teachers and students. Uh, she's also the author of the recent book, Coming of Age in 2020, which is a compilation of essays, photos, comics, poems, songs, and other submitted works by students uh, to the Learning Network, uh, showing how youth across the country coped uh, during uh, that tumultuous year. Uh, and on top of that, Catherine was an English teacher and a newspaper advisor for 10 years uh, at the Edward R. Murrow High School in Brooklyn. So I'm thrilled to have her on our uh, podcast today. And actually, there's so much to talk about that we're going to make this two episodes. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Um, I just have to correct one thing. I'm no longer, sure. I stepped down as editor-in-chief in 2019 oh. To work ah. on the books that I've done that draw from our site. But I was the editor-in-chief from 2006 to 2019. So Terrific. Yeah. All right. I stand corrected. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a loss for, for them. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I want to first start by talking talking about the, the book, uh, Coming of Age um, in 2020, uh, which is a remarkable time capsule of youth writing and artwork. Um, and can you tell me just kind of about the just the how that project came about? As I understand it, was it, a, it was initially sort of a, a contest for teenagers? Yeah, our our site, the New York Times Learning Network, which I'll just parenthetically so you know what it is, is uh, been around almost twenty five years now, and it's outside the Times subscription service, so it's free. And uh, we have really uh, two mandates. One is like, make sure we're on the news cycle. So like, for example, this week, that earthquake, we try to get resources up right away to help teachers or Tyree Nichols last week, you know, we're, we're always trying to find a way to help kid, teachers easily put the news into classrooms. But I would say, really, probably our top priority uh, for at least the last 10, 15 years has been student voice. And so 
every single day we uh, run a couple of writing prompts that are open student forums where kids can comment publicly. And we run 10 contests a year. And through those two mechanisms, we literally hear from like 100,000 kids all over the world a year on everything going on in the news and in culture, not just front page news, but you know anything happening that the Times would cover. So this was one of, I believe, 10 contests that we ran in 2020, and we, um, on, you know, we come up with our contest list in the summer, and that summer it was just really clear that it couldn't be business as usual when we published our calendar in the fall. You know, teachers, like most schools were, were virtual. You know, we were in the middle of still, there were no vaccines then. Um, that summer, we were in the middle of the huge racial reckoning that was Black Lives Matter. We were heading towards the 2020 election. And we just saw that, you know, there was no way we could ask teachers to, to take their kids through some of the more elaborate contests we'd run in the past. So this was our simplest possible idea. It was basically like, kids, send us anything you have. Um, a photo on your camera roll, a diary entry, a text that you sent to a friend that for some reason says something important to you about what your life in 2020 has been like, responding to anything happening. A lot of them did do the pandemic, of course, but many of them did politics or, you know, um, social issues or whatever. So yeah, I was going to ask, I was going to ask if there were any um, consistent themes or uh, maybe a mood or tone yeah, um, you know, to do that, we, I mean, I, I do think it's the first ever, it, this was done in waves. So first we had the contest, we got 5,500 entries uh, from kids around the country. Um, we had every kind of everything, like a, one girl wrote a crossword puzzle, kids did videos, kids made songs, kids had podcasts, uh, paintings, doodles in their diaries, one student made a Lego sculpture, like there's all manner of different kind of things they sent to us. Um, the first iteration of this became what I think is the only, in the history of the New York Times, the only uh, teenage produced special print section ever. And that was with help from uh, a whole bunch of people who work on a team at the Times called Special Sections, uh, who think about like, like every June there's an LGBTQ plus section, that kind of thing, right? Um, so this published in March of 2021, a year to the day that the global pandemic had been um, declared. From that, that was only 37 pieces. Then the book grew out of it because we had so much extra stuff. And in the end, we have, I think, 161 pieces in this book. So when you ask about themes, um, I think the themes traced what kids went through that year. And it really starts with the pandemic moves on to the summer of kids in the streets. I mean, everybody in the streets. Uh, we had a lot of West Coast kids writing about cataclysmic climate stuff. Like if you remember, there were fires that summer in California. So we have those kids responding there. Um, and then ending with the election. Um, mm -hmm. The one thing I will say about this book and kids, and I, anybody who works with kids might recognize this, over and over, no matter what they were going through, and you know the the mental health crisis and among teenagers is really evident in this book. But almost all these kids, they had to post artist statements as well as sending us their work. They had a statement that went with it. Almost every kid, in some way, reached for hope. In some way, said, "But there's a good, you know, there's a silver lining to the pandemic for me, or whatever." So, 
that's a theme that I think you find throughout what is could otherwise be a kind of depressing collection. So sure, sure. And I don't know. I mean, every you know, it's 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 difficult to compare times and eras. But when I think about what young people are facing, so the prospect of you know climate science, gun violence, um, you know, geopolitical um, unrest. We don't know what's you know. Um, balloons flying over from China. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's, it's just like, it's the list just gets, goes on and on and on. And and I'm just curious, you know, as a uh, former educator and also just from your vantage point of having run this important uh, resource for, for teachers, um, how you think this generation will um, emerge from all of this, you know, it's a big question. (laughs) It's a huge question. And, you know, (laughs) I feel like I always feel humbled by questions like that, because as much as we do have a vantage point on our site, I know, and you know, that being in the classroom is different. Like I'm, I'm removed. I sit in an office at the New York Times, or to be honest, in an office in my house in Brooklyn these days. Right. Um, And I hear from them online, but I think when you're in the classroom with kids, you know, you have a a whole different vantage. So as much as we can, we try to hear from teachers. We try to ask teachers, you know, especially post pandemic, how, how would you like us to help you? What, what resources can we give you? Um, I think one thing that's emerging though, from what I hear from them and what we see is just how engaged this generation is. And I compare that to when I, both to my semi-lame generation, I, I just turned 60. So what that puts me at the end of the baby baby boom, but not in the cool protesting part of it, right? Just the like young part of it. But I think about when I taught high school for all those years, 19 years, I was in classrooms, right? This generation feels because they have to be so much more engaged. Like, you know, like think about the Parkland kids back now that's, I think, however many it's the anniversary almost what three four years i've lost track right yes yes um you know and then they've the climate change is so huge to them a lot of kids we saw we we've run this same contest that resulted in the book every year this year we got a ton of kids responding to roe v wade for instance um so i i think they're just incredibly politically engaged um and feel like their voices have weight in a way that maybe before social media, before the pandemic, before you could go viral on TikTok? I don't know. Maybe kids didn't have that feeling. So that's a plus, right? Yeah. No. um, Yes, definitely. Um, Although I I do wonder, you know, in terms of social media being a a new part of the equation, you know, we recently saw the Seattle Public Schools um, sue high-tech companies uh, because of the, Mm. you know, just the correlations that continue to show up. You know, there was the whistleblower that testified before Congress from Facebook suggesting that internally, you know, they they knew about, um, you know, just some of the issues around uh, body image and, and bullying yeah. and all those kinds of things. And, and, and you know, um, and, and it, it makes me think because um, I hear from some of my students as, sort of as, as a university professor that sometimes they feel like there's this, it's like when we went to college, you know, we kind of came with a clean slate. We didn't have everything our parents had posted of our awkward photos with, with braces <laughs> and, you know, and all those kinds of things. And there is this kind of um, uh, analytic or, sorry, uh, the uh, algorithm 
algorithm or algorithms, whatever the word is, uh, um, way in which um, young people are 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 being uh, tasked with like performing in ways that I don't know that we we had to when we were their age, you know. Um, and I don't know if you have a comment about that, but I just, I find oh, it absolutely. pretty <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, on our site, we ask a question a day tagged to something in the news and, you know, it's almost like we've been doing this so long, you know, the ones that are going to light up and hundreds of kids are going to answer. And if we ever ask them about the downside of social media, they swarm to tell us, you know, all, all about the nuances that, like you said, we can't even understand. Like m- many people my age choose to not engage with social media at all. I'm not sure that's a, a choice if you're a teenager, right? Um, and they, yes. Um, in fact, the recent coming of age in 2022, you know, it, every year, right? We just crowned the winners. And one of the ones that won was a girl's image of holding a phone up and it says, we are always watching and it's showing a protest and like, you know, an American flag and whatever. But the point she made uh, in her artist statement was that teenagers just pull out their phone if anything happens we pull out our phone just to see if it's going to be something and we film and we we had we asked an open forum for other kids to say what do you think of this artwork and so many kids responded to that one to say she nailed it that's right our phones are always watching good or bad um you know you have we're aware of that and it changes everything about how we you know run our lives so yeah but what's interesting is that they pull out their phones, but not to talk on it. <laughs> so this is something that I'm observing with my, with, you know, with my other colleagues who are professors, where we have a generation of young people that are really uncomfortable with the idea of having a conversation on the phone. I mean, imagine training, you know, budding or aspiring journalists to go out and research a story. And, you know, you get, you know, you say, okay, how's that coming? How's that assignment coming? Well, I sent an email and they didn't respond or I didn't know how to text. And it's like, did you try like calling? And the, and the eyes open up as though you've, you know, you've asked them to, you know, I mean, it's just, it's really interesting. And, and I, it, it is of a concern um, that we're, maybe we're losing some, um, some social skills that our generation has taken for granted about just how you engage and how you interact and how you advocate, you know, and um, you know, it's, interesting time. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, as much, they've lost them, they've gained them, right? They're, they're yeah, both ways. Sure. Like I, I have 25 sure. year old twins of my own and God forbid <laughs> I would ever call them. I mean, the house could be on fire. I'd text first and say, can I call you? The house is on fire. And if they allowed <laughs> it, I would call them, you know, um, yeah. and they're not even, they're 25. So, yeah. um, so yes to all that. And last year we ran a contest Called, that was our profile contest, very traditional journalistic, um, you know, type of, of work, right? And so many teachers told us, uh, we, this is a useful contest to us because it's going to force kids to talk to people face to face that they've never met. Because we said, you know, respect the spirit of this, do journalism, don't go profile your best friend, go out in the community and find somebody. And so many teachers said, thank you for that push, you know, but my kids are terrified to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's not a thing that I ever heard when I ran the school newspaper, you know, in the 90s in Brooklyn. Like, what else was there? Of course, you went out in person, yeah. you know. Sure, so. sure. Well, now we realized that you and I just prior to starting our conversation today that we had actually met 
um, at a National Council for Teachers of English conference uh, years ago when my uh, first book, um, Newsworthy, came out. And so we were kindred spirit, you know, in, in this whole uh, initiative around student voice. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are, you know, so for people listening, they may not be aware of um, a Supreme Court decision, the Hazelwood decision, which um, in many, many states allows censorship of student voice. So there's a, a handful of maybe a dozen or so states that have put out anti-Hazelwood legislation. But just to give people some context, um, you know, a, a principal can say, we don't like the fact that the students are writing about tattoos or abortion, probably more, more likely or things like that, and pick up all the papers and forbid them from putting it out. And I just wonder, um, you know, as we, we notice um, more politicization of, of, of journalism as a practice, um, and you, when you were in your role at the Times, what you noticed about, um, you know, maybe uh, certain states being more um, amenable to discussing, to engaging students in, in topics that might be considered controversial? Yeah, I mean, that's a constant with us, right? And of course, like, you can date it to when when President Trump started calling the New York Times fake news, that was right. reflected back at us, right? We would hear that. I mean, our whole job is to help people teach with the times. Um, we, we very purposely, we know that we're trying to reach teachers everywhere. And we, and more to the point, we're trying to reach students everywhere. And we're reaching a real variety of students through their teachers. So for example, compare and contrast. If you're a, a Times print subscriber, right, you're probably, whatever that demographic looks like, you're in a major city in the U.S. maybe, right? Your kids are getting that from you. But to reach kids through teachers is to reach everybody, not just to reach the children of subscribers, if you see what I'm saying. So the learning network's reach is, you know, you therefore get every kind of kid. Um, so we definitely uh, have been kind of battling the notion of fake news and the times is this or the times is that since 2015, 2016 in a, in a way that we weren't before. Um, for a couple of years, we also had a, a group of kind of times amb teacher ambassadors, about a hundred teachers who taught all over the country, um, who came together with us. It had to be virtual because it was during the pandemic talking about teaching with the times. And many of them had to send home, say a, a permission slip to say the Times is going to be part of the, the curriculum, right? Um, and we'd get some pushback. Now, they couldn't be in our program unless the principal or the school had signed off. So it, the, the school knew that the Times would be part of the curriculum. But um, yes, we've had to be careful. And when we, the stuff we publish on the site, we've worked really, really, really hard to welcome all kinds of points of view, are thrilled when we get kids, you know, we love when kids speak their mind and we find that unlike adults with their kind of hardened talking points, you know, that they got on whichever your flavor of news is, kids are kind of generally really figuring it out in real time. I mean, yes, of course, many quote their parents. Of course, you're going to find that. But since we pose a question every single day about something in the news, um, if a kid's teacher asks them at school to go on our site and respond to that question, it, it's it's very genuine the way they write back. And so we do get this real range um, and we love it. But that said, would we love to hear from more kids in red states? Yes. Are the teachers 
more likely to be teaching with the times probably in in times friendly school districts i, I don't I, I don't know that for sure but i don't see how it's not true so mm -hmm. um yeah we don't have a well, ton of data we're in the newsroom we're not marketing so we don't know right. a lot about right we can't trace who what who comes to us so right well Catherine, we're having such a wonderful conversation i want to pause here and pick it up with it in an additional episode. Um, so um, so please stay tuned for that. Uh, we're talking with Catherine Schulten, who was the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Learning Network, um, and uh, we'll pick it up in our next conversation. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.